Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 21st, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I forgot I was still listening to myself. I was listening to the music before the program on my main computer to make sure that the signal was getting across fine. Tonight we are going to present part 25 of our series on the Gospel of John, and it is subtitled, How the Blind Can See. This evening I will leave the current events out of the presentation for the most part. I think I tied that in well enough, I pray, last week. As John chapter 8 came to a close, the enemies of Yahshua Christ had wanted to stone him, since he exposed them for what they truly were, children of the devil and not true children of Abraham. Doing this, Christ did not confront them on the basis of their genealogy, a knowledge of which had evidently been suppressed by the Herodians. Nor did he confront them on the basis of the events in the recent history of Judea, the Edomite takeover of Judea. Rather, Christ confronted them on the basis of their character as it was their character which most effectively revealed their genealogy. If they were truly Abraham's children, they should have exhibited a nature which is congenial to God, which Abraham had also done. Yahweh knows those who are his. As Paul informs us in 2 Timothy, And they should each have a disposition patterned after the character of the man which Yahweh had created. Even when he sinned, Adam did not dispute his punishment. And in the subsequent generations, his sons continued to seek after the very same God who had prescribed that punishment. But Christ had informed his enemies that their apostasy was congenital, that it was due to the circumstances of their origins because Yahweh was not their father. So in that manner, it was said elsewhere in the gospel, such as in Luke chapter 6, for a good tree brings forth not corrupt fruit. Neither does a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. Therefore, it is the nature of the beast, of those beasts which are bastards, to contend with God. And the Jews who were contending with Christ knew exactly what he had meant when he told them that God was not their father, where they responded and said, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. When Christ answered this, he told them that they were liars and that their true father was the devil 
As we also discussed, Malachi had prophesied of this very thing, even of this very conversation, and his prophecy also explained that the reasons for the division among the priests was that they had transgressed the covenant of Levi, and that Judah had married the daughter of a strange god, a prophecy which was fulfilled in history as the remnant of Judah from the time of John Hyrcanus had begun converting Edomites and other Canaanites, systematically circumcising them and subsuming them into the citizenship of Judea. The absorption of the Edomites and others who adopted the customs of the Judeans into the general population of Judea was attested by the Greek historian Strabo and explained in detail by the Judean historian Flavius Josephus. The prophets Malachi and Zechariah in the Bible, along with the recorded history of Judea, explain the words of Christ in John chapter 8 as well as those pertaining to impostor Judeans in the Revelation and the explanations of apostasy in the epistles of Paul, namely in Romans chapter 9, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In John chapter 8, Christ had explained the consequences of the things which those prophets foresaw in the events of history. Together, all of this testimony creates a picture-perfect tapestry of the true nature and identity of the enemies of Christ, the synagogue of Satan of the scriptures from which today's Jews are all descended. Today's Jews display the same character as those Jews who disputed with Christ 2,000 years ago as they continue to contend with God. They display the same character as that of the original fallen angels, the Satan from whom they are descended, as they continue to corrupt the creation of God and make war against the Adamic man. They also quite naturally promote and elevate one another so that they can consolidate power among themselves wherever they are found as they had done under the leadership of the family of Herod in first century Judea. Then, once they achieve power, they insist on controlling the thoughts, beliefs, and expressions of others in order to insulate their power and protect it from criticism. As they did in first century Judea, they also do today. So by comparing the Jews of today with the Jews who opposed Christ. We have further assurance that their apostasy is congenital as well as their own lust for power as it has been carried down throughout all of their generations. Now, as Christ departs from those Jews who contended with him and he leaves the temple, he is found outside encountering a man who was blind from birth Healing the blind man, he is once again confronted by the Jews, since it is still a Sabbath. This is still the last day, that great day of the feast, 
which John first began to describe in chapter 7 of his gospel, in verse 37. This only becomes evident once it is realized that the verses from John 7.53 through John 8.11 were not a part of the original gospel of John. As we have also explained at length here several weeks ago, so on that same day, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, six months before the crucifixion, we have the revelation of the true nature of the adversaries of Christ found in John chapter 8. Then there is the healing of a man blind from birth here in John chapter 9. And then the teaching of Christ concerning the good shepherd, the hirelings, the wolves, and the sheep in John chapter 10. John's record of the day does not end until verse 21 of that chapter, where it ends rather abruptly. This sequence of events is not coincidental, and once its significance is realized, then we may realize just how it is that the blind can see. In the King James Version, the last verse of John chapter 8 reads, then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. We did not comment on how Yahshua had hid himself, since it is beyond our understanding, and the witnesses did not leave a precise description. Knowing, however, that it is Yahweh God who permits men to see, or who prevents them from seeing, as it is asserted in the books of the prophets and in the book of Exodus, the metaphysical nature of the event can be noted without conjecture only so long as it is not belabored. There is a similar occurrence described in John chapter 12 verse 36. So now we shall continue with John chapter 9 after Christ had departed from the temple. And passing by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his students asked him, saying, Rabbi, who has done wrong, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Yahshua replied, Neither has this man done wrong, nor his parents, but so that the works of Yahweh would be manifest by him. It was evidently a belief of the Judeans, part of the leaven of the Pharisees, as it is also expressed by the enemies of Christ later on in verse 34 of this chapter, that if a man is born blind or ostensibly with any birth defect, it is due to some sin. Yet here, in the words of Christ, we see that is not true and that men born with defects may be born that way for the ultimate glory of God. In the scriptures, as well as in history, it is clear that children suffer from the mistakes or sins of their forebears. This is evident, for instance, in Lamentations chapter 5, where it speaks of the sins of Israel collectively 
and the consequences of those sins. We have given the hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. They're recognizing that international trade was one of their sins. Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. Servants have ruled over us. This is the inevitable result of international trade. There is none that does deliver us out of their hand. Similarly, we read in Daniel chapter 9, just before the promise of the Messiah, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. If a man's parents squander their estates, of course the man suffers because his parents diminished or, in the case of the children of Israel, even lost his inheritance. But on a more intimate level, Yahweh speaks of the children of Israel in their dispersions and says in Ezekiel chapter 18, Yet you say, Why? Why does the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? When the Son has done that which is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and has done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sins, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wickedness shall be upon him. There are some sins which the entire nation suffers. And it can't be helped when the people are put out of their homeland and dispossessed on account of their sin that their children suffer. It can't be helped when one generation enacts a series of laws that are wicked that the next generation suffers for it. That can't be helped. But on a personal level, we're told here that the sons will not bear the iniquities of their fathers. So while the nation as a whole suffers from the consequences of the sins of previous generations, it cannot be said that a child born with a defect is so born because of the sins of his parents. But that is evidently what the people of Judea believed, and Christ refutes that belief here. Of course, there are some who claim, or who would claim, that Ezekiel's words can apply to the children of fornication to those of mixed race. But Ezekiel was prophesying in reference to sons and not in reference to bastards. As for the children of fornicators, Christ himself has vowed to destroy them in Revelation chapter 2. Paul continues to uphold the law in Hebrews chapter 12, speaking about the historic failure of the children of Israel to resist sin where he wrote, But if you be without chastisement, whereof all, all the Israelites, are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. By chastisement, Paul means not merely suffering, but suffering for the purpose of correction 
as it is foretold of the children of Israel in the prophets. Christ continues to respond to the question of his disciples. It is necessary for us, now some manuscripts have me, to accomplish the works of he who has sent me, where some manuscripts have us. While it is day, it is necessary for us to accomplish the works of he who has sent me while it is day. When the night comes, no one is able to work. Whenever I may be in the society, I am the light of the society. Men cannot see without light, and Christ is the light of the world, as John attests in the opening chapter of his gospel. Here Christ makes the same assertion for himself as he also did in John chapter 8, verse 12, where he said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So in that same manner, Christ now alludes to his earthly ministry as day and to his imminent death and departure as the coming of night. Paul of Tarsus made a similar analogy in Romans chapter 13, where speaking of the imminent return of Christ, or the return of Christ which all Christians should esteem as being imminent, he wrote, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. At night men cannot see, but Christ being the light of the world, with him men can see quite clearly. Christ said to those who would follow him, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 5, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Speaking once again to his disciples in John chapter 12, we read, Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walks in darkness knows not where he goes. While you have light, believe in a light, that you may be children of light. These things spoke Jesus and departed, and did hide himself from them. Once again, Paul made similar analogies to those statements in some of his other epistles. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul wrote, You are all the children of light and the children of day. We are not of the, light, of the night nor of darkness. Then in Ephesians chapter 5, Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. 
Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever does make manifest is light. Wherefore he says, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Paul equating sinners with the dead, and light with obedience to God. A man who claims to have light, or to be in the light, and is not keeping the law of God, the commandments of Christ, is a liar. He's in darkness. Of course, the things done by them in secret are now, this day, come out of the closet as the Jewish media pushes to normalize things such as sodomy, gender confusion, pedophilia, and bestiality. So we await fire from heaven to reprove them, as also happened to the ancient cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. So Christ is the light. Christ is the light of men. And John informed us in the opening chapter of his gospel. And outside of Christ, all are in darkness and are therefore blind, whether they be of the children of Israel or not. But Christ had only come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and therefore, ultimately, only they can come to the light. When the children of Israel rebel against God, for example, as we read in the 107th Psalm, he makes them to sit in darkness. From, from verse 10, such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron because they rebelled against the words of God and contemned the counsel of the Most High. The children of Israel can come out of darkness and into the light, but the enemies of Christ are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, as the Apostle Jude informs us. And that is the day of wrath in which they are all destroyed, as he further informs us that they are wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For the same reason that the children of Israel would be called into the light of Christ, we read in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42, which we will read again later this evening, I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. 
I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Corresponding to this prophecy, we see the purpose of John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Lord, explained in the prophecy of Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, and in part it says, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high, the day spring, the sun, has visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The day spring was Christ himself, the Messiah, whom John the Baptist was to announce. So in Christ, the blind can see, and his healing of this man who is blind from birth is a parable representing the much greater healing of the blindness of the children of Israel upon hearing his gospel. The fact that it happened at this point in his ministry informs us of what it is that we must open our eyes to since it is that collective blindness which Christ intends to heal. Now, in returning to the account of the man who was blind from birth, saying these things, he spat on the ground, referring to Yahshua Christ, and made a clay out of the spit and smeared him with the clay upon the eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent, a parenthetical remark by John. Then he departed and washed, and came seeing. The Roman period, this is the Roman period, right? The first century, the ministry of Christ. The Roman period, pool of Siloam, which is mentioned in the New Testament only here in this chapter, was discovered by archaeologists in Jerusalem in 2004. Unfortunately, they were Jewish archaeologists because today they are the only archaeologists in Jerusalem. It was discovered after the ground above it was broke for a construction project. And the findings, as they were reported in several archaeological journals, seem to be very credible. There is another pool nearby, which was called by the same name, but which was actually built by the Byzantine Greeks in the 5th century. Those Orthodox people can't get anything right. They still worship graven images, and they have the wrong pool of Siloam. Whether the site of the Roman era pool is the same as that of the Old Testament pool of the same name is often debated, but I believe it to be so. I believe it is the Old Testament pool. There seems to be no reason why the Roman era pool of Siloam is not the same as the pool of Siloah, S-I-L-O-A-H, instead of O-A-M, which is mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3. In Nehemiah, we read of the 
wall of the pool of Siloa by the King's Garden. And in an article describing the 2004 discovery entitled The Siloam Pool Where Jesus Healed the Blind Man, published in Bible History Daily on May 12, 2018, we read, The Siloam Pool is adjacent to the area in the ancient city of David known as the King's Garden and is just southeast of the remains of the 5th century church and pool traditionally believed to be the sacred Christian site. In other words, the Byzantines built their church and pool of Siloam to an area northwest of the original site. We may note that once again, the church tradition, like many of its traditions, is a 5th century innovation. They probably tried to approximate the area, but the city had been destroyed and scraped level by the Romans. Not one stone stood upon another. Now, part of the pool of Siloam structure did survive, but it was found buried. So perhaps rather than being broken apart and destroyed, it was simply plowed over with debris because it was buried in, in debris and they were going to break the ground to build something there and they discovered the pool by chance. Perhaps the clay used to heal the blind man represents the dust of the earth from which Adam was made, to which the children of Israel are often compared in scripture. If that is so, then for me it invokes thoughts of Isaiah chapter 51. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness, you that seek Yahweh, look unto the rock whence you are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence you are digged. Looking unto the rock from which they were hewn, the children of Israel in their captivity certainly shall find a remedy for their blindness. Of course, this is inviting, especially because of the manner in which Christ is described making the clay here but we prefer not to elaborate on conjecture. So the blind man, who was probably escorted to the pool by someone nearby, was healed by the act of being anointed with the clay and washing in a pool of which the name means sent, S-E-N-T, sent, and to, the, and to which he was sent for his healing. We read in Isaiah chapter 42, where it is speaking collectively of the children of Israel. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as Yahweh's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observes not. Opening the ears, but he hears not. In any case, it is certainly not Christ who is blind, but the ancient kingdom of Israel was itself a messenger to the greater Adamic world merely by its existence. And the scattered people of Israel would also be messengers in their subsequent history, being sent into captivity in their punishment in order to prove the existence of God and the certainty of his promises. As we read in Isaiah chapter 43, Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, 
that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and am saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. By coming to Christ, by coming to Yahshua Christ, the children of Israel scattered throughout Europe and the Near East proved that Yahweh is God, even if their eyes were not yet fully opened. And they still aren't today, as long as they're stuck in Orthodoxy or Catholicism or any of those old, corrupted versions of Christianity. Once the man was healed, many of his own neighbors were incredulous. Then the neighbors and those having observed him before, because he was a beggar, now the majority text has because he was blind, and that explains the reason for the difference in the King James Version. Because he was a beggar, they said, Is this man not he who sits and begs? Others said that it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. The man said that I am, or I am he. This man being mature, as his parents later indicate, and being blind from birth, must have been at least 20 years old. And therefore these neighbors and those having observed him before, must have known him for a long time, yet being so astonished that he could suddenly see, at least some of them could not believe that it was actually him, in spite of how long they had known him. So once his identity was established, therefore they said to him, How have your eyes been opened? He replied, The man who was called Yahshua made clay and smeared it on my eyes and said to me that, Go to Siloam and wash. Then, departing and washing, I saw. The man is not an informant. He could not have had any understanding that the leaders of the Jews wanted to kill Christ. He is only innocently relating what he had experienced. Of course, he must have been extremely excited rejoicing that for the first time in his life he had the ability to see. We may not be able to imagine what it is like being blind for 20 years or longer, never having seen anything, and being out in the streets of a large city which is crowded due to the feast, suddenly being able to see. However, once we understand the true message of this day, described in John chapters 8 to 10, and what blindness Christ intends to cure by this account in his gospel. We can attain a small and vicarious taste of the euphoria which this man had experienced. The Jews are the devil. The gospel of Christ opens the eyes of the blind, and the blind are the sheep who accepted him upon hearing the gospel. 
whereby the European nations became Christendom. And that, in turn, is the light on the hill which cannot be hid. But, as it is also prophesied, the devil is still making every effort to destroy it. So we read verse 12, John chapter 9. And they said to him, Where is he? He says, I do not know. John often used verbs in the present tense, where we made every effort to follow his usage. So we often see present tense verbs in our translation, where in our modern English we may expect a past tense. Apparently, at least some of the people did want to inform on Yahshua. And although we cannot be certain what their motive was, it certainly seems to be what John was implying as his description continues in verse 13. They brought him who was once blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath on the day which Yahshua had made the clay and opened his eyes. As we have explained, it was the same Sabbath John mentioned where this account begins in chapter 7, the Sabbath which was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Once we dispose of the rather lengthy interpolation concerning the woman caught in adultery, we can see that the context never breaks from John chapter 7 verse 37 to John chapter 10 verse 21. John 10.22 begins a description of a subsequent event which occurred about two months later, this being the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. John mentions a feast that the Maccabees initiated in John chapter 10, which was the Feast of the Restoration, which celebrated the restoration of the temple after it was defiled by the Syrians around 156 BC, and today the Jews call that feast the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah, but it's not a biblical feast, it's a feast ordained by the Maccabees. And it was in winter, which is why John says it's in winter, and it's about two months after this. Now the formerly blind man stands before the Pharisees some of whom had wanted to stone Christ only a short while before this time, perhaps only a couple of hours. Then again, the Pharisees also were asking him how he now saw. And he said to them, He smeared clay on my eyes, and I washed myself, and I see. Then some from among the Pharisees said, This man is not from Yahweh, because he does not keep the Sabbath. I should probably have God there. Because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How is a sinful man able to do signs such as these? And there was division among them. Here it is once again evident that the first reaction of some of the Pharisees was to contend over the law and thereby to contend with God himself, rather than to consider the possibility that the great miracle by which the man was healed must have been from God. 
but some of them did understand. And as Christ had explained in John chapter 8, those who are the true children of Abraham had the same character and nature that Abraham had, who believed God rather than contending with him. Even when, in the eyes of men, Abraham seems to have had legitimate reasons to contend with Yahweh, he did not, but rather he complied with every demand out of faith and trust in Yahweh. So the contenders continued to question the man. Then they again said to the blind man, What do you say concerning him? That he opened your eyes. So he said that he is a prophet. How could the man believe otherwise, having experienced what Christ had done to him, what Christ had told him would happen if he did what he was told, and how it happened exactly as Christ had said that it would? The man is candid, but then again, he could not have known the underlying motives of the Pharisees, so he was only being honest. Yet even with that, the enemies of Christ sought reason not to believe him. Therefore, the Judeans, perhaps Jews would be more appropriate by this point, but nevertheless technically incorrect. Therefore, the Judeans did not believe it concerning him, that he was blind and now saw, until when they had called the parents of him whose sight had been restored. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, whom you say that he had been born blind? That's basically an accusation. So how does he now see? Therefore his parents responded and said, We know that he is our son, and that he had been born blind. But how he sees now, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. You ask him. He is mature. He may speak concerning himself. Where we have the word mature, the King James Version has of age. The word is halikia which is, in this context, according to Liddell and Scott, mostly the flower or prime of life, from about 17 to 45, man's estate, manhood, to be of age. But the perspective here is Hebrew rather than Greek, the parents being Judean. And according to the scriptures, a man was not counted until his 20th year, as it is evident in the book of Numbers. A man could not function as a priest or teacher until his 30th year, or, according to the Septuagint, where it is rather remarkably consistent, his 25th year. This man may have been much older, as he is never described as a youth but we can rather safely assume that he was at least 20 years of age. In contrast, while he was also already a man of sufficient age to be of service to the temple, Paul of Tarsus was nevertheless described as a youth in Acts chapter 7, chapter 7 verse 58. So this man was probably older, not being described as a youth. Where they had asked the parents, so how does he see now? And where they had told the parents, whom you say that he had been born blind. There seems to be, have been an implication that perhaps they were lying 
about the man's blindness in the first place, as they could not honestly have been expected to be able to answer such a question as how does he now see. John now implies that the parents had referred to the Pharisees. The parents had referred the Pharisees back to their son for fear of their Jew for fear of the Jews. I'm sorry. His parents said these things because they feared the Judeans. For already the Judeans agreed that if one should profess him as Christ, he would be put out of the assembly hall. Here John is also suggesting that the parents knew of the intention of the Pharisees to communicate, to excommunicate anyone who professed Yahshua as the Christ. So this seems to be the first explicit indication that their attitude concerning him was known to the general public of Jerusalem. So John explains that for this reason, his parents said that he is mature, you question him. The man himself did not go so far as to declare that Yahshua was the Christ, but only a prophet. As we learned earlier in John, the people also generally esteemed John the Baptist to have been a prophet. But nevertheless, the Pharisees now attempt to compel this man to disclaim Yahshua Christ, which is yet another tactic that their descendants, the Jews, employ to this very day, forcing Christians to deny Christianity. Therefore, they called the man who was blind for a second time and said to him, You must give the honor to Yahweh. We know that this man is a wrongdoer, a wrongdoer or a sinner. They demanded that the man who was blind from birth and who was suddenly able to see denounce Yahshua who miraculously healed him as a sinner, and the man refused to do so. The shameless insolence of the enemies of Christ in the face of such a miracle is astounding, but perhaps it also helps us to understand the congenital nature of his enemies today. All of this is happening before large numbers of the general population who witnessed the healing of this man and who were in Jerusalem on the last great day of the feast. Reports of this event must have been spreading throughout the crowd as this conversation was transpiring. In the years subsequent to the ascension of the Christ, as Christianity was spreading in spite of its ongoing persecution by the Jews, many men went to their deaths rather than denounce the miracles of Christ, which either they themselves had witnessed or which they received knowledge of firsthand through the many witnesses who had seen them. Therefore, miraculous acts such as the healing of the blind assured the spread of the gospel so that the blind could be healed. And Satan, the Jew, has made every effort throughout history unto this day to either divert or prevent the European people from keeping to their Christian faith. Evidently, Satan did not want the blind to see, and he does not want the blind to see now. But this man refuses to denounce his healer. Then he replied, I do not know if he is a wrongdoer. One thing I do know, that being blind, now I see. The man told the plain and simple truth, 
that, and for the, for that, for that, the enemies of Christ despised him, and like lawyers, pursuing a verdict to which they are predisposed, they continued to badger him. Therefore, they said to him, What has he done to you? How have your eyes been opened? He replied to them, I told you already and you do not hear. Why again do you wish to hear? Do you also wish to become his students? The 3rd century papyrus P66 has verse 27 to read in part, I told you already and you heard. In the context of the passage, the verb should be understood with its fullest meaning, which is to hear and understand. Understanding beyond mere mechanical hearing, as explained by Liddell and Scott in their intermediate lexicon for that verb, which is akuo. The final question here, it's the word from which we get acoustics from. How about that? The final question here is preceded by the negative particle may, which is a negative particle, as we explained several times a few weeks ago, a negative particle that was often employed as an interrogative where a negative answer was expected. And therefore, it was not translated here. But perhaps in this context, the question may have better been rendered, don't you also desire to become his students? Evidently, the man could not even imagine how they would reject him. After seeing and verifying with more than two witnesses, so great a miracle. In the 146th Psalm, we read, and I'm probably going to read, I think this might be the whole psalm, but it's all pertinent to this conversation. Praise ye Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, O my soul. While I live will I praise Yahweh. I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. In other words, as long as I'm alive. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the son of man, meaning the average son of Adam, in whom there is no hope. His breath goes forth. He returns to his earth. In other words, to dust. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in Yahweh his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever, which executes judgment for the oppressed, which gives food to the hungry, Yahweh looses the prisoners. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh raises them that are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh preserves the sojourners. He relieves the fatherless and the widow, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. Yahweh shall reign forever. Even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations, praise ye Yahweh. Of course, from the very first hint that a Messiah was born in Judea, and the Magi had announced the arrival of he that is born king of the Judeans, which we see in Matthew chapter 2, we are informed that when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him.
So the Pharisees did reject the man whose eyes were opened, and they began to deride him for telling the truth. And they abused him, saying, You are a student of that man, but we are students of Moses. We know that Yahweh spoke to Moses, but we do not know where he is from. They did not really believe Moses, but rather they only appealed to Moses as a pretense by which they could uphold their own power and authority. If they had truly believed Moses, they would have also believed Christ, as he had professed to them earlier, as it is recorded in John chapter 5, after his first miracle in Jerusalem, when he healed the man who had been lame for 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. The sort of work which the law proscribed on the Sabbath is not the same sort of work which Christ had done to heal the blind man. So the work which Christ did to heal did not challenge the law of God. Rather, it only challenged the authority of the rulers who themselves, as the psalm informs us, could do nothing for the lame, the sick, and the blind. Now, the formerly blind man makes a, another profession which must have irritated them greatly. The man replied and said to them, For in this is a wondrous thing, that you do not know where he was from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that Yahweh does not hear wrongdoers or sinners, but if one should be reverent and would do his will, that man he hears. That's the basis upon which Christ had constantly challenged his adversaries. As it says in Proverbs chapter 15, from verse 29, Yahweh is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. Another reference to the ability to see or to the blindness of the individual. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and a good report makes the bones fat. The ear that hears the reproof of life abides among the wise. He that refuses instruction despises his own soul. But he that hears reproof gets understanding. The fear of Yahweh is the instruction of wisdom, but before honor is humility. Of course, the enemies of Christ exhibited no humility, and therefore they could not have understood the correction of the scriptures. Not at all. They still don't. Earlier in that same chapter of Proverbs, we read from verse 9, The way of the wicked is an abomination unto Yahweh, but he loves him that follows after righteousness. Correction is grievous unto him that forsakes the way, and he that hates reproof shall die. These Pharisees certainly hated the reproof of this man who was born blind, but evidently knew the scriptures more intimately than the Pharisees themselves. 
In ancient Judea, the people attended the synagogues each Sabbath day to hear readings of the scriptures by the priests. Sometimes men from the community would also stand to read. This man, being blind from birth, would have attended the synagogues each Sabbath day, and perhaps he listened more attentively since he could not have had any visual distractions. One such occasion where Christ had stood to read in the synagogue in Nazareth is recorded in Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And it was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found a place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable you're the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister or the servant at the synagogue or the assembly hall, as I typically translate it, and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue, this is the King James Version, were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? When the people witnessed the recovering of the sight of the blind man, they should have known that Yahshua was the Messiah. It's right in Isaiah. So, now the man proclaims, From of old it has not been heard that the eyes of one born blind have been opened. Unless, unless this man were from Yahweh, he is not able to do anything. The phrase ektu ahionis is from of old here, but in the King James Version, it is since the world began. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the phrase appears only in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 where it should be interpreted literally as from the age. The phrase, as John uses it here, is employed in the same manner as a similar phrase used by Luke, ap ahionis, in Luke chapter 1, verse 70, and in Acts chapters 3 and 15. There, the King James Version renders that phrase similarly to, similarly to how it translates John's phrase here. In their in intermediate lexicon, Liddell and Scott have at Ahionis, entry 3, a long space of time and age, and then explicitly of Luke's phrase, ap Ahionis, of old, or for ages, 
which is how we interpret both Luke's use of ap ahionis and John's use of ectu ahionis here from of old, or for ages it has not been heard that the eyes of one born blind have been opened. As for the declaration of this man, who was healed of his blindness, in the prophets, in the 146th Psalm, and in several places in Isaiah, it is explicitly declared that Yahweh, the Savior and Redeemer of Israel, the Messiah, would open the eyes of the blind. When Christ read the passage in the synagogue at Nazareth, which referred to the recovering of sight to the blind, he was citing what we now know as Isaiah chapter 61. Yet these Pharisees wanted to kill him. And as John said above, they had already agreed that if one should profess him as the Christ, he would be put out of the assembly hall. So now they resort to slandering a man who merely told them the truth. They replied and said to him, You were born entirely in sin, and you teach us? And they cast him outside. As they had done to Christ, they also do now. They dehumanize this man with slander as an excuse to reject his testimony. There is no scripture that teaches explicitly that if a man is born blind, it is on account of some sin. So there is no way that this man could justly be labeled a sinner. Yet, as we had seen earlier in verse 2 of this chapter, even the apostles themselves had that impression and Christ had refuted it. Yahweh also refutes it in Exodus chapter 4. There, where Moses complains that he is not eloquent enough to speak on Yahweh's behalf to the children of Israel. Yahweh answers in verse 11. And Yahweh said unto him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the dumb or deaf or the seeing, or the blind, have not I Yahweh? So a man is not born with a birth defect on account of sin, but on account of the purpose and glory of God. As Paul also explained that Christ had said to him, where he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. But here the Pharisees needed an excuse by which to belittle this man and his testimony in spite of all the scripture which proves that the man was right. Once again they employ the same tactics to this very day and often with a lot more cunning. So the focus changes as the man is expelled from their presence. We're in verse 35. Yahshua heard that they cast him out, and finding him said, Do you have faith in the Son of Man? Some manuscripts have, Do you have faith in the Son of God? Including the majority text upon which the King James Version is based. As we have explained here in earlier presentations of our commentary on the Gospel of John, but perhaps not as concisely, where Christ used the phrase Son of Man in reference to himself, 
He was citing the Messianic prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and where he used the phrase Son of God in reference to himself. He was citing the Messianic prophecy of the second Psalm and its description of a particular son who would ultimately be appointed to possess and rule over the nations, just as the prophecy in Daniel of the Son of Man. So the man blind from birth answers in a way that also corresponds to the spread of the gospel to the blind sheep of Israel. He replied and said, And who is he, Master, that I should have faith in him? Yahshua said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is speaking with you. Then he said, I do believe, Master, and he worshipped him. <clears throat> Excuse me. At this point, the man learns that Christ is indeed the Messiah, and knowing the scriptures as he did, which is apparent in his testimony before the Pharisees, the man must have made the realization in relation to both his experience and the profession of Christ. So that profession continues. And Yahshua said, For judgment I have come into society, that those not seeing would see, and those seeing would be made blind. A few manuscripts, the 3rd century papyrus P75, the Codex Sinaiticus, and the Codex Washingtonensis, want all of verse 38, and the opening words, and Yahshua said, here in verse 39. The dialogue of this verse would then be appended to the statement of Christ from the end of verse 37, although it seems that must be an error common to these particular manuscripts, since the two statements make better sense in the context of the text as we have it, where they are separate and direct responses. I'm sorry, separate and distinct responses. I should probably make these presentations with my glasses on, but I don't like to for some reason. In John chapter 12, Christ says, For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. But as we had demonstrated discussing John 3.16 in part 9 of this commentary, subtitled, The World of Salvation, the world which he came to save is the world which was promised to come of the children of Israel in the words of the prophets. Christ came not to judge the world, but he nevertheless came for judgment. If he lived, Israel would not be released from the law, since he is Yahweh the husband incarnate, and they would all have to die instead for their sins. If he died a death other than that which he had suffered, Israel may have been freed from the law, but his enemies would not be responsible for the blood of all the prophets, since he was also a prophet. But if he died at the hand of his enemies, he is also justified when they are judged, as he also said in John chapter 12. He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him, the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. For that reason, the way in which he was to die was also written in the prophets, 
and according to that, his enemies shall be judged for his death. So he came into the world so that the children of Israel could ultimately be saved and so that his enemies could ultimately and righteously be condemned. In any event, here our interpretation of this event on the greater scale of the relationship of Yahshua Christ and lost sheep of the children of Israel is vindicated in the words of Christ himself. The enemies of Christ they claimed to see, as they themselves were about to attest, and yet they were made blind as to the true meaning of the Old Testament. For that, Paul of Tarsus had written in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, speaking of those who rejected Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart, explaining that rejecting Christ they could not possibly understand the scriptures. When the prophet Isaiah is writing, where, <coughs> I'm sorry, <coughs> Ooh, I'm sorry, where the prophet Isaiah, I think I'm just talking too fast, where the prophet Isaiah is writing in reference to the children of Israel who were carried off into captivity. He had written this in the 8th century before Christ in Isaiah chapter 42 where we see a messianic prophecy. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the nations. He shall not cry nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged, till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall await for his law. So for judgment Christ had come, as he says here in John. This is a prophecy of Christ, who shall ultimately judge the nations. So we shall continue with Isaiah. Thus saith, Isaiah chapter 42 verse 5, Thus saith Yahweh God, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth, and that which cometh out of it, He that gives breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. For I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, speaking to the children of Israel, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations, to open the blind eyes. I'm sorry, this is speaking to the Messiah, not yet to the children of Israel. They are the blind. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. The children of Israel in captivity are the blind, and they are the prisons prisoners in the prison house, having been alienated from God. So we see that it is Christ, the Messiah, who shall come to open their eyes and free them from their alienation. This is the deliverance to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind 
of which Christ had spoken in Luke chapter 4, where he also cited Isaiah from chapter 61, which we won't even get to this evening. Continuing with Isaiah chapter 42, skipping a few verses which mention the idolatry of the children of Israel for which they were being punished, and where Yahweh demands that in the places where they are scattered they should worship him instead of graven images and idols like the Orthodox and the Catholics worship. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbs, and I will make the rivers islands, and I will dry up the pools, and I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in the paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images or pray to icons that say to the molten images, ye are our gods or our saints. Hear ye deaf and look ye blind that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind? as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant, seeing many things, but thou observes not, opening the ears, but he hears not. So we see this blindness is indeed a punishment upon the children of Israel for their sins. But it is the Messiah who will take them out of it. Now, as we proceed with Isaiah chapter 42, we shall see with certainty that it is Israel which is blind as a punishment for their sins. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. In other words, the law will be kept. It certainly shall not be disposed of. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey and none delivers for a spoil, and none saith, Restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not Yahweh, he against whom we have sinned? This being a dialogue, which is very difficult to discern sometimes because the King James Version did not present it that way. For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he has poured out upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and has set him on fire round about, yet he knew it not, just like today most people don't know it, and it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart, even after their daughters are raped, or their mothers are beaten and robbed. Then in Isaiah chapter 43, we read an assurance that the children of Israel shall be kept safe where they are scattered, and that they shall ultimately be restored in Christ. But now thus saith Yahweh that has created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, 
Thou shalt not be burned, neither shall a flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt to niggers for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. So there are truly no Negroes who may be Christians. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons and daughters from afar, and my, my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. The reference to all the nations is a reference to the many prophecies that the children of Israel would become many nations in their captivity. And as the chapter progresses, it remains clear that Yahweh is only addressing the children of Israel. The children of Israel are the blind people that have eyes throughout these chapters of Isaiah. It's a common theme here in Isaiah that the children of Israel are blind and that their blindness will be cured in connection with the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah also informs us as to where they would be scattered in chapter 66 of his prophecy. This is written in relation to the final destruction of Israel in Palestine, as it also mentions those who mourn for Jerusalem. And in verse 19, we read, And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them, the survivors of Israel and Judah, to Tarshish, Pul and Lud that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off that have not heard of my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Isaiah had written this in the 8th century before Christ. And in the centuries which followed, the Celtic and Germanic tribes emerged in history in these very places, as they can all be identified in the scriptures with lands ranging from Mesopotamia and the Black Sea north and west as far as Iberia. Tarshish in scripture is Iberia, Lud is Lydia and Etruria or Tuscany, the land of the Etruscans. Javan are the Ionian Greeks. And Tubal was north of the Caucasus Mountains, for which white Europeans are called Caucasians. There are many other proofs of these migrations in both history and archaeology, but Isaiah described them beforehand. These are the blind whose sight Christ had come to restore. 
Now the Pharisees responded to the words of Christ concerning their own ability to see, perceiving what he meant. when he exclaimed that those seeing would be made blind. Some of the Pharisees, being with him, heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? This last question also begins with the negative particle may, whereby it is evident that the Pharisees had the audacity to expect a negative answer from Yahshua Christ, the Messiah whom they had rejected. Yahshua said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin or fault. But now you say that we see, therefore your fault remains. Paul had not known sin except by the law. The Pharisees claimed to see, claimed to know the law, and rejected the plain and simple truth which was spoken by the prophets, and then brought before their very eyes in Christ. Rejecting him and claiming to see, their insolence demonstrates the nature of their character and their apostasy is congenital, proving that they were truly not the children of Abraham nor of Yahweh. Even those of them who were of Israel had only cared for their own position and office and authority within the greater community as we read in John chapter 12. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. For the same reason we read in Isaiah chapter 56, All ye beasts of the field come to devour, yea, all ye beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yeah, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his gain from his quarter. Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow shall be as this day and much more abundant. The watchmen of the second temple period, being hirelings, allowed the wolves into the sheepfold to devour the sheep, and that is the main subject of the discourse of Christ, as he responds to this very situation in John chapter 10. The same circumstance persists to this very day. Once the identity, character, and nature of the enemies of Yahweh is revealed, as Christ does in John chapter 8. Once it is realized just who the blind are that he came to cure, as he makes an example in John chapter 9, and once the identity of his people is manifest, as he demonstrates how that would be done in John chapter 10, that is how the blind are made to see. And that is how these chapters must be interpreted if we are ever going to understand the fullness of the message of the gospel of Christ. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel.
and good night.